Friends, Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And in this episode, we are continuing our deep delve into the subterranean horrors that lie beneath the mountains of madness. But before all that, something is coming. Yes, we have the Blasphemous Tome coming out. This is a paper fanzine that we produce for all our Patreon backers. The zine is licensed by Chaosium and features a variety of articles and a new Call of Cthulhu scenario written by... Mr. Matthew Sanderson. Can you tell us anything about it, Matt? Yeah, I've gone for a scenario that could be set almost anywhere um, with a um, couple of caveats. There's a couple of little set, uh, setting elements there. And a provisional working title of number 22. Could it be set in the Antarctic? With uh, a bit of urban development, maybe. All right. The fanzine will be going out to anybody who backs us by the end of November 2019. So at the end of November, we'll be down at Dragon Meat. Yes, indeed. That's on Saturday the 30th of November at the Nov Hotel in Hammersmith, London. And we have one other bit of news, which will probably come as good news to some few, maybe bad news to others. I, I, I'd say at least a blessed relief. Which is, after a few years of doing so, we have decided to stop singing at you. Or not to you, at you. Those heavies from the Department of Culture, Media and Sport finally caught up with us with a cease and desist. (laughs) Yeah. But don't fear, those $5 backers are still getting lots of things, lots of goodies. You get to hear us unedited, or almost unedited. It has been a delight singing all this time, but I think it's probably a mercy to all of us that we stop now. But you still right. call this singing. I, st- <laughs> I still think this is gross mis- misab- oh, misadvertising. How, how the hell did we get into doing this in the first place, Paul? I don't know. Whose stupid idea was that? <laughs> We're all looking at you, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd just like to give a brief shout-out to a YouTube show done by a friend of mine, Stephen Twining, called Wandering Monsters. It's mostly focused on D&D news, but in the recent episode, he made mention of Call of Cthulhu and RuneQuest. Yep, and you can find that on YouTube. And now we return to At the Mountains of Madness, picking up at Chapter 8. Suddenly, we were in one of the strangest, weirdest, and most terrible of all the corners of Earth's globe. Of all existing lands, it was infinitely the most ancient... And the conviction grew upon us that this hideous upland must indeed be the fabled nightmare plateau of Leng, which even the mad author of the Necronomicon was reluctant to discuss. Well, we found out earlier probably the reason why he was reluctant to discuss anything is that he was presumably high when writing the Necronomicon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that doesn't stop people talking about stuff, though. Uh, Maybe quite quite verbose, I think. uh, It depends on the drug. Poking around further, Danforth and I find a more recent structure containing sculptures of decadent workmanship that tell later parts of the Old One's story. These sculptures suggest that the mountain range the men are exploring is not the tallest on Earth. That grim honour is beyond doubt reserved for something which half the sculptures hesitated to recall at all, while others approached it with obvious repugnance and trepidation. It seems that there was one part of the ancient land, the first part that ever rose from the waters after the earth had flung off the moon and the old ones had seeped down from the stars, which had come to be shunned as vaguely and namelessly evil. Namelessly evil. There's a good scenario collection title almost (laughs) that could use that. Yeah, I mean, vaguely and namelessly evil. I mean, that's an evocative phrase, but I'm not really sure what it tells us. These mountains are evil, but we can't really say what. They're just evil. Hmm. The sculptures suggest that these mountains are some 40,000 feet high, radically vaster than even the shocking mountains of madness we had crossed. The decadent old ones of the later period had offered strange prayers to these peaks. Dyer links these to the old narcotic whispers about Kadath in the cold waste. Now, that's an interesting thing. At this stage, I mean, obviously, this is a few years after Lovecraft had written the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. What does this imply about Kadath possibly being here on Earth as opposed to in the Dreamlands as it is in the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath? 
Oh, it's a bit like the Plateau of Leng. It's locationally challenged or locationally confused. Well, except there's also a bit in the Dreamquest of Unknown Kadath where he talks about how I think it's the Enchanted Forest that Randolph Carter passes through at some stage has got areas where sort of the fabric between the waking world and the dreamlands is weak and people can inadvertently pass between the two realms. Mm. And this suggests perhaps that Kedath is one of these places that perhaps it does intrude into our world, that perhaps it's part of both worlds, or perhaps it's two different things. Yeah, I remember the um, Dreamland source book for Call of Cthulhu taking that thread and saying that there's a few places on Earth that, as you say, do cross over, mm. one of them being just outside Roanoke, explaining the disappearance of the Lost Colony. Yeah, and you can see going down this the great abyss that we we come to later you know maybe that leads down into the depths of the earth maybe that crosses over again lovecraft does like his subterranean places additionally these sculptures tell of the terrain in which the men find themselves eons of water erosion reshape the city and hollowed out the ground below eventually revealing the stygian sunless sea that lurked at the earth's bowels that's a one hell of a piece of alliteration there hmm the great river that ran through the city eventually drained completely into this sea. Imagining what the city must have been like in its heyday, Dyer forgets the current gloominess and decides that it must have had a marvellous and mystic beauty. Yeah, this is a rare moment of, of cheer and optimism in amongst all this gloom and decay. But despite this, this brief moment of, of cheer, Dyer then notes a sombre and recurrent type of scene in which the old ones were shown in the act of recoiling affrightedly from some object, never allowed to appear in the design. Yeah, I mean, they've apparently, in amongst all these carvings that are explaining the world and, and the history of the old ones in lots of detail and so on, they've also mastered the art of foreshadowing. <laughs> Finally, the men come across a single set of carvings that hint at the final calamity that led to the city's evacuation. The whole area was rendered uninhabitable by the coming of the Great Cold some 500,000 years ago, which also put an end to the fabled lands of Lomar and Hyperborea. The final carvings show old ones using heaters and wearing protective clothing. Yeah, so we've got these creatures who flew through space on wings, the the cold vacuum of space that's at damn close to absolute zero. All right, I mean, I guess it gets cold in the Antarctic, but I would have thought if they were able to survive that, I mean, what is this cold in Antarctica doing to them that the frozen vacuum of space couldn't? It's that degeneration. First they couldn't fly through space, now they can't handle the cold. Yeah. And doesn't anybody tell them, like, if they put on their coats now, if they do fly off into space, they're not going to feel the benefit? Not to mention being able to get the wings out through them as well. Oh, yeah. But also, yeah, I mean, I, I guess you do acclimatise a bit. I mean, I've been living in the UK for, what, 30-something years now, and I have lost some of my capacity to cope with hot weather. I'm hoping one day Tiff might become more accustomed to the weather. Coming from Florida, she thinks it's cold all the time, even in the height of summer. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can relate to that. Some of the old ones fled to other cities across the globe, while others headed deep below to the subterranean sea, setting up home beneath the waters, no doubt because of its greater certainty of uniform warmth. Dye works out that at least two of the tunnels the old ones took down to the sea lie within a reasonable exploring distance. That's convenient. Obviously a lot of work went into constructing this new city, and the old ones, well, they built some new Shoggoth slaves. These ones, however, grew to enormous size and singular intelligence, and were represented as taking and executing orders with marvellous quickness. They seemed to converse with the old ones by mimicking their voices. That makes it sound very much like my parrot as a shoggoth. Mimic <laughs> mimicking voices. Yeah. Quite how he divines this from the murals, I'm not quite sure, but, you know, speech bubbles. We, we've Ah, well, yes, we have addressed this, but... I mean, we've, uh, I mean, as we'll, we'll discover fairly shortly, they've learnt the entire history of this alien civilization in five hours by reading all these. This is the point at which your suspension of disbelief breaks, is it, Paul? This bit. <laughs> I don't know. It's just uh, just curious <laughs> that they know about the Shoggoths mimicking their voices. But Yeah, uh, yeah I, I had that problem with almost every element of what they've discovered. <laughs> 
The old ones stripped stones from their earlier city, taking much of their earlier art with them. Again, Dyer describes the new art they created at this time as decadent. We see, again, everything here being described as decadent. I mean, I, I did a quick count, and Lovecraft used the word decadent or decadence 21 times in this story. So, as we touched on earlier, obviously a big theme here, and we're seeing it much more now with the descriptions of the art. What, what do we think it actually means in terms of this degeneration of the old ones? I kind of pictured it almost uh, like a degeneration of art, or laziness, that they'd become complacent, they'd become relaxed, they rested upon their elder thing laurels. The civilization was almost falling apart in a way, but it was um, collapsing in on itself um, almost because of its laziness. Except, I mean, we sort Mm. of see that, I mean, they've been through a lot of trials and tribulations, you know, conflicts with, with other alien species, now the encroaching weather. So it's, it's not like they've had a chance to go into, I'd say, you know, that almost torpor state that you're describing there. There's certainly plenty of reasons for them to act. I think, I mean, he's probably taking inspiration from things like the decline and fall of the Roman Empire here and this idea that at some stage, you know, civilizations just do reach a stage where, for a variety of reasons, they fall apart. I think he's likening it to what he perceives as his modern day, that there's a decline in society and civilization and that morally it's on a downward slope. So I think he's very much paralleling the older things with humans. Yeah, but I mean, there are always kind of two different strands there. One is, I think, I think most people as they get older see the changes in the society that they grew up within as being increasingly negative because they no longer feel at place at home in the, the society that they used to know. You know, things are different, therefore they're wrong. But at the same time, we do see things like the fall of the Roman Empire and, you know, empires around the world, great civilizations, which do collapse in on themselves. So there's the subjective and the objective part. I think what you've described there is Lovecraft's very subjective thing, which probably came to him quite early in life compared Mm. to most people, where he sort of sees everything around him, you know, particularly from his time in New York as being degenerate and wrong because there's foreigners around. Yeah, I think what he's getting at here is something different. I think it is, you know, this idea that empires must fall. But with the old ones, it's perhaps more impressive because, you know, we think of of human empires, even long-lived ones like, you know, the ancient Egyptians or the Romans or whatever, as as lasting perhaps centuries. But this has lasted, what, millions of years. Yeah, the longer they last, the harder they fall. Finally, the men reached the end of the sculptures, leaving them with a picture of the old ones shuttling back and forth betwixt the land city in summer and the sea cavern city in winter. The encroaching cold finally killed off the plant and animal life upon which the old ones had come to depend, leaving only seals, whales, and the great grotesque penguins. There's nothing more grotesque than a penguin. But they're cute. You seen Pingu? Lovely little guy. What had happened afterward, we could only guess. How long had the new sea cavern city survived? Was it still down there, a stony corpse in eternal blackness? Had the subterranean waters frozen at last? To what fate had the ocean-bottom cities of the outer world been delivered? Had any of the old ones shifted north ahead of the creeping ice cap? And that's... Yeah, an interesting thing uh, yeah, in the Cthulhu mythos in general, because we really encounter primarily the old ones in at the, at the Mountains of Madness. I mean, we, we see them as well in Dreams in the Witch House. But we think of them as being a long-dead, fallen civilization. But, I mean, Lovecraft has mentioned a number of times in this story that they had other cities throughout the world, including a lot of cities below the water. There's no reason why, you know, say, you know, as with the Deep One city of Johannes Ley in The Shadow of Rinsmith, there's no reason and why there couldn't be some of these still existing. Yeah, absolutely. They're extremely long-lived as well. Mm. So, yeah, if they did escape, they could be anywhere. Except by the Shoggoths that went to go live with the Deep Ones. <laughs> they can't get a break. Dyer wonders if the Mego might have proved too great a threat, or if the Old Ones had encountered some unknown threat from the ocean depths. And here Lovecraft mentions a phrase, mysterious scars on Antarctic seals. And this is a phrase taken from a book uh, that Lovecraft owned, published in uh, 1900, called The Antarctic Regions by none other than German scientist Karl Fricker. Hey! And looking it up a little more, I find a glacier 
in the Antarctic called the Fricker Glacier. First you find a Fricker Street in Providence, and so you're suddenly popping up everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> what's up with that? <laughs> I'm not sure I'm going to go and visit it. Why not? It's one thing to do if you win the lottery. Well, I guess. The specimens Lake had recovered came from an earlier period than all this, back when the continent was warm and covered in vegetation. Dyer can't help but dwell upon the eight intact creatures and... The strange things we had tried so hard to lay to somebody's madness. Those frightful graves. The amount and nature of the missing material. Gedney. The unearthly toughness of those archaic monstrosities and the queer vital freaks the sculptures now showed the race to have. If there wasn't a punk band called the Vital Freaks, someone missed a trick there. And with that, we move on to Chapter 9. Having learnt of the black inner world from the carvings, the two men decide that they must see it for themselves. To behold this fabulous gulf in stark reality was a lure which seemed impossible of resistance once we knew of the thing. Dyer and Danforth have been transcribing for five hours, however, and even their experimental dry cell torch batteries only have another four hours of life left in them. They decide to abandon any more transcription and set off at once. That's a lot to learn in five hours. It is. Yeah. yeah. And also their batteries are standing up pretty well. You know, this is the 1930s. I wouldn't really know how long batteries mm-hmm. are going to last. But, you know, if you've got fairly powerful torches now... I don't know how long the batteries last in them, but you can see the uh, you can see the battery meter go down by the percentage in almost uh, akin to seconds on my phone when I turn the battery. That's well, the phone, the light, right? Yeah. So, but you know, if you've yeah. got a big mag light, I guess that's going to last a while. Their batteries are better than my phone. Yeah, I think the kind of batteries they're talking about are the ones you lug, you know, <laughs> the, the big sort of ones with handles on. So, but I'd love to have heard Lovecraft explain to an Egyptologist how his characters in this decipher these alien carvings and language in the course of five hours and learn the entire civilization, and compare that to Egyptologists at the time who spent years just trying to understand hieroglyphs written by, I don't know, humans. Amongst all that detritus, they evidently found the uh, the Dummy's Guide to Elder Things script. (laughs) Dyer deduces that the nearest entrance to the underworld must be blocked off, as they saw no surviving traces of the structure that should lead to it. With this, they head off in the direction of the more distant one, about a mile further on. Oh, a mile. Wow, long way. Well, it is when you're going through subterranean tunnels, a lot of which are broken up, and you're going up bridges down, up slopes. It's all covered in debris and stuff like that. I imagine Mm. a mile over that would be really quite hard work. As well as all that, I mean, they're crossing you know, some largely untouched areas, uh, walking over bridges, through ruins all around. But finally, as they get close to the tunnel mouth, Danforth's keen young nostrils give them the first hint of something unusual, an odour that was vaguely, subtly and unmistakably akin to that which had nauseated them upon opening the insane grave of the horror poor Lake had dissected. He's young. got a thing about Danforth, hasn't he? Because he talked about his young eyes earlier, and now he's on about his young nostrils. I've never heard anybody talk about somebody's young nostrils. I mean, Lovecraft's only about 40 at this point. I think you're a snapper of 30. Yeah. <laughs> Reluctant to turn back, the two men rationalise this away. They still dim their torches and tiptoe around. Danforth's... Oh, my God! Danforth's young eyes also prove keen, and he notices a kind of swathe tracked through the debris the two men also notice an odor of gasoline in the air yeah in call of cthulhu terms i mean the idea as i understand it is every sense that's not hearing comes under spot hidden pretty much so i mean this sort of explains danforth here he's got a really high spot hidden skill that means that not only does he have good eyesight but he has keen young nostrils (laughs) and also that Really, there should be an age penalty associated with spot hidden because clearly, as you get older, your sight and smell, according to Lovecraft, well, I mean, maybe according to fact, according to my experience anyway, do decline, certainly the eyesight. But this is one thing that's never quite made sense to me about Call of Cthulhu the fact that you do have four senses lumped under one skill and then another skill for the fifth one. So, basically, any sense that's not hearing comes under spot hidden. But then you have listen. Yeah. I mean, it just seems kind of weirdly arbitrary to me. 
yeah, I can see an argument, not a very good one, for having separate skills for each sense, because the argument I've always heard for listen being something different than spotting is, you know, some people have got really good eyesight but poor hearing or vice versa. But then suddenly, you know, we've got smell being included under this. And what happens if my character's got really good eyesight but no sense of smell because he's a heavy smoker? How does that work and why should that then be separated from listen? It makes absolutely no sense to me. The world's a confusing place. There's a beginning of a joke there. My investigator can't smell. <laughs> Although, having such a high spot hidden, that can't possibly go wrong for poor Danforth later on, can it? No, no. no. Yeah, if he didn't have those young eyes, he'd have been a lot better off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Our motivation after that is something I will leave to psychologists. We knew now that some terrible extension of the camp horrors must have crawled into this knighted burial place of the eons, hence could not doubt any longer the existence of nameless conditions present, or at least recent, just ahead. Yet in the end, we did let sheer burning curiosity, or anxiety, or auto-hypnotism, or vague thoughts of responsibility toward Gedney, or whatnot, drive us on. I like that, or whatnot. So many M-dashes in one sentence as well. (laughs) But this idea that they're being driven on by auto-hypnotism, that they've somehow got themselves into this kind of fugue state where they're just plodding on actually i've been as i'm saying it that does actually sound quite plausible it kind of does yeah. yeah they're just like almost they're, they're locked into it yeah. yeah yeah just on autopilot kind of thing I, I would read that as not one arm extended out in front of them dangling a pocket watch chain following it themselves no, no. Yeah. But I'm sure, you know, this is something we talked about on the podcast a number of times, and I'm sure we've all had the experience at some stage of having players who sort of say, you know, oh, it's getting a bit scary here, we're going down into the depths, there's obviously bad things around here. Well, why would we continue? And it's, you know, here's a whole bunch of reasons. Mm. Yeah, You should get that paragraph and, you know, just write it on a piece of paper, and, and every time anyone comes up with an objection like that, just slam it down in front of them and say, pick one. Or whatnot. That's going to be yeah. my go-to yeah. every time now. It seems that the collapsed tunnels and debris are going to prevent any further progress. Then Danforth sees an opening that has been cleared of obstructions. He just keeps passing these spot-hidden rolls, doesn't he? Beyond the arch, the men find a cubic room and a rough levelling of the debris, upon which several small objects lay carelessly scattered about, and at one corner of which a considerable amount of gasoline must have been spilled. All this suggests some form of camp but who would have camped here someone that evidently ain't a pyromaniac because if they smell gasoline i'm bringing out a match already (laughs) i want warmth in this place if i'm walking around down there well at this stage they are amongst other things trying to find gedney who's missing so yeah it's not unreasonable to assume at this stage that gedney has made this camp yeah these objects consist of tin cans as queerly opened as those we had seen at that ravaged place Many spent matches, three illustrated books more or less curiously smudged, an empty ink bottle with its pictorial and instructional carton, a broken fountain pen, some oddly snipped fragments of fur and tent cloth, a used electric battery with circular of directions, a folder that came with our type of tent heater, and a sprinkling of crumpled papers. I was expecting him to say suddenly, and a cuddly toy, because it seems like the (laughs) conveyor belt in Generation Game. That's an unusual selection of stuff. Um, I mean, not unusual in that it's all taken from the camp, but the way it's been treated, the strange smudges, the way the the tins have been weirdly opened, yeah, all of this is not normal. Especially as it's a list that goes over six lines of text. And disturbingly, the paper is covered with markings like the arrangements of dots on the green soapstones that they keep finding. Dyer wants to convince himself that these markings, like the trail in the camp, are all the work of the maddened Gedney. He cannot make himself believe, however, that Gedney could have imitated the Old One's technique so perfectly. Dyer muses about why he and Danforth did not flee at this point. Perhaps we were mad. Well, have I not said that those horrible peaks were the mountains of madness? Only in the title. He rationalises their motivations as getting caught up in the spirit of exploration and adventure. The markings on the paper suggest a new route below, and the men follow it to a corridor close enough to the surface to be lit by daylight. This opens into a vast round space, the interior of a tower, whose walls are boldly sculptured into a spiral band of heroic proportions, 
with an artistic splendour far beyond anything we had encountered before. Yeah, and there are certain bits of description in this that, while they, they don't necessarily tie in with action, would, I think, be really interesting to see on the screen if there ever is a successful big screen adaptation of this. And I think it doesn't necessarily seem like a big thing, but that walking into the inside of this huge tower and this great spiral walkway and all the carvings around there, I imagine that would be quite a breathtaking moment on screen. Mm. One day. But the most important feature of all this is the titanic stone ramp, which winds along the wall to a dizzying height. According to the sculptures, the original tower had stood in the centre of an immense circular plaza and had perhaps been five or six hundred feet high. Vitally, all the archways at the bottom seem to have been recently half-cleared. This leads Dyer to deduce that this is the path the others have taken as they head towards it. The men spy something that excludes all other matters. There they were, the three sledges missing from Lake's camp. Shaken by hard usage, they were carefully and intelligently packed and strapped and contained things derived from Lake's equipment. The really great shock came when we stepped over and undid one tarpaulin whose outlines had peculiarly disquieted us. It seemed that others as well as Lake had been interested in collecting typical specimens. Well, there were two here, both stiffly frozen, perfectly preserved, patched with adhesive plaster where some wounds around the neck had occurred, and wrapped with patent care to prevent further damage. They were the bodies of young Gedney and the missing dog. What? So it's not Gedney they're following? Well, I guess none of us saw that coming. Well, I was kind of hoping it would just be him that ran off into the snow, gone all serial killer-like, but yeah, that kind of punts my theory out the water, doesn't it? But we're never really <laughs> supposed to think it's Gedney, are we, no. as readers? We, we're kind of on board all along, patting ourselves <laughs> on the back, thinking, we know it's not Gedney. <laughs> well, the, this is a technique that we've discussed that before that Lovecraft uses quite often, where he will not necessarily telegraph an ending, but have an obvious goal in mind that the reader will deduce long before it's spelt out in the... Uh, in the story and it's not there i think to make you feel clever but it's there to build that sense of dread because you know there's this terrible revelation coming you've got a pretty good idea of what it is and you're just seeing all the supporting evidence come into place and i think that is quite a powerful technique and one that we quite often eschew in terms of you know trying to surprise people and trying to put a twist in and yeah i think this is a good example of why that works Mm. and with that we move into chapter 10 Many people will probably judge us callous, as well as mad, for thinking about the Northward Tunnel and the Abyss so soon after our sombre discovery. Yeah, okay, they've just found the the dead body of the guy they've been looking for, yeah, plus the dog, poor dog, and almost immediately is, oh, hang on, let, let's, let's head off, We've, we have wonders to discover. To the tunnel! As the two men stand looking at the bodies in shock, they hear some distant sounds. This shatters their conception of their surroundings as a waste, as utterly and irrevocably void of every vestige of normal life as the sterile disk of the moon. Instead of the eerie piping they have come to associate with the old ones, however, what they hear is simply the raucous squawking of a penguin. Well, the way penguins have been described in this so far, surely that's going to be more horrifying. They get a bad rap in this story, the penguins. Mm, I like penguins. We're going to... We're going to meet some. The sound is coming from below, where Dyer assumes the sunless sea must lie. The men follow it down into darkness, finding that the path has been cleared. They pass quickly through underground structures, stopping only when a bulky white shape looms up before them. This white, waddling thing was fully six feet high. That is one mother of a penguin. Well, except at this stage, they assume that it's not a penguin. They see this big shape loom out, and they've been going down here assuming that the old ones are alive and this is what they're following. So their first reaction is that, you know, this must be one of the old ones. But fear quickly turns to anticlimax when they realise that this is not the case. It was only a penguin, albeit of a huge unknown species larger than the greatest of the known king penguins and monstrous in its combined albinism and virtual eyelessness. Oh, kind of feel sorry for the poor little things. Yeah, kind of do. Well, I think little's the wrong word. 
And in case you think that this is complete fancy, earlier this year, I think in August or so, uh, in New Zealand, an amateur paleontologist discovered fossils of a penguin that's not quite as tall as this, but it, one that stood apparently about 1.6 metres tall, which I think is around 5 foot 3 inches, and weighed around 80 kilos, which is around 170 pounds. That's a fairly hefty penguin. But you know, the fossils do not actually reveal whether or not they were albinos. But you still have a hard time to pick them up, though. Oh. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm here all week. Don't forget to eat the waitress. <laughs> did, did they ever do white chocolate penguin bars? Not that I'm aware of, but I would eat the hell out of them if they did. <laughs> yeah, because that, I mean, that, that would be a great tie-in if there's ever a Mountains of Madness film. Yeah. Sponsored by. <laughs> albino penguin bars. <laughs> do them in extra large. Mm-hmm. The men spot three of these birds and assume that they have come from a species long adapted to living down in the warmer subterranean realms. Dyer wonders what has driven them up from the depths. From here, the tunnel down becomes steeper and featureless. The men pass more penguins and wonder what other entities might dwell in the limitless void below. The further they descend, the warmer the environment. At some point, they encounter a pile of discarded furs that had been removed from the camp. So as it's getting warmer, whatever is going down here is just shedding its furs. There is a lingering trace of the odour that Dyer has come to associate with the old ones. Disturbingly, however, there is a new and no less offensive smell mingled with it. And the floor of the cavern that the men are passing over seems to have been polished to a sort of greasy smoothness. Okay, oh. there's something that would account for the bad smell and the greasy feel of the floor. Penguin shit. Yes. <laughs> well, no, he does. He does cover that in just a moment, and I think the penguin droppings, you know, Bergwano in general has a fairly distinctive colour. I and mean, he's talking about something that's a polished smoothness. Yeah. And yeah, I, I think unless the penguins are kind of rolling around in it or you know running a, a floor polisher over it afterwards. Well, they're running that up and down on it in their little flappy feet. They'll still they'll, they'll be, be lumps. big. They'd be big, big flappy feet. feet. Yeah. Yeah. While there is a honeycomb of tunnels down here, Dyer is in no doubt about which way to go, as the larger proportion of penguin droppings there prevented all confusion as to the right course. Just follow the penguin shit. Yeah, I just don't think they're gingerbread pieces. A larger proportion of penguin droppings. This does actually suggest an alternative if they run out of paper for their trailblazing at any stage that they just need to shit regularly. Well, the can, amount of pemmican they're getting through. It's a tricky through. act, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, they certainly might lose their shit later, but that's... Uh, oh! Yeah. The carvings in these tunnels are markedly different from even the most decadent that the men had encountered. A sudden difference, wholly transcending explanation. A difference in basic nature as well as in mere quality, and involving so profound and calamitous a degradation of skill that nothing in the hitherto observed rate of decline could have led one to expect it. They're doing stick pictures on the walls now, aren't they? <laughs> well, no, it's even weirder than that, because, as we'll discover, these seem to have perhaps different influences and different styles, even different mathematics behind them than the carvings we've seen, indicating that perhaps they weren't even created by the old ones. Danforth speculates that these carvings are a form of palimpsest formed by the obliteration of a previous design. There is a new alien element that sets them apart, almost parodying the work of the old ones. Now, what's, so, what's a palimpsest, Scott? A palimpsest is, if you have a, you know, a, in this case carvings, but it's normally paper or a painting or whatever, and efface it as much as possible, get rid of it, and then reuse the paper and write over it, or paint over it. But the important element of a palimpsest is there is still perhaps some trace of the original uh, work that you've, you've effaced that, that bleeds through. But the implication here is that these parodies of the earlier carvings were created by the Shoggoths, not by the old ones. That as they rose up against their masters, they have effaced these carvings and put their own versions of these things in the place of the originals. And 
that sort of really makes me think about the nature of the intelligence that shoggoths have. This is, yes, all right, there's an element of imitation here. But at the same time, there's a creative urge. There's the fact that they're playing with the idea, uh, the ideas that the old ones have put down there, that they're reinventing them, that they're creating something new out of these elements, which almost leads to this idea that they have some kind of spirit of artistic creation there, which makes them sound a lot more like what we consider to be an, an almost human intelligence than the imitative protoplasmic robots that the old ones describe them to be. Mm. And I, I was thinking about how the, you know this perhaps might inform how we use shoggoths in our games, that they aren't just you know kind of brutal monsters, they aren't just imitators, they aren't you know mindless beasts, that they are something that is capable even of artistic creation. I mean, have you ever used shoggoths in a way that sort of reflects that, or have you always just used them as kind of brutal monsters? I've never really used them much. Well, I can no, I can think of a scenario that gives the shoggoths some forms of artistic uh, expression. Does it involve a swimming pool by chance? It does. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it's always a struggle with some of Lovecraft's monsters because we think of them as monsters. But when you look in the rule book, even they are given quite high intelligence. Quite mm. a lot of these things, so they are not mindless monsters. They are sometimes more intelligent than the investigators. As flippant as it sounds, I think they might actually make quite a good choir. Because think of all the mouths they can make. They could actually yeah. be quite musical creatures mm. in that respect. Because they'd be multiple mouths creating multiple sounds. Yeah. Well, and, and the, the fact that they could, you know, create bursting bubbles and, and you know, tendrils slapping against each other. Can you imagine what a shoggoth beatbox would sound like? It's a one-man band! Yeah. You may not have to imagine. Just, <laughs> just fast forward about 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Limited by the dwindling life of their torch batteries, the men press on without examining the carvings in detail. They encounter fewer penguins, but a greater intensity of the strange new odour. Then, quite unexpectedly, we saw certain obstructions on the polished floor ahead. Obstructions which were quite definitely not penguins, and turned on our second torch after making sure that the objects were quite stationary. And with that, we launch into chapter 11. This is where shit gets real. Still another time have I come to a place where it is very difficult to proceed. I ought to be hardened by this stage, but there are some experiences and intimations which scar too deeply to permit of healing, and leave only such an added sensitiveness that memory re-inspires all the original horror. Interesting uh, to reflect on that with the insanity mechanics Mm. in Call of Cthulhu, I think. I guess we do get elements of that where if someone's undergoing indefinite insanity, that can be rekindled, they can be pushed into bouts of madness by any small amount of sanity loss. Mm. But I'm not sure I've ever seen it come up in a game where simply reflecting back on some of the horrors that have happened have been a trigger, which you know is very much the case with things like PTSD. I mean, that's where mm. the term trigger comes from. The obstructions on the oddly polished floor are the remains of four creatures like those that have been buried at the camp. They have been mutilated and are lying in a spreading pool of thick green liquid. The unidentifiable fetter is thick in the air. There is no trace of the four other specimens. The damage to the bodies suggests something more fearsome than mere penguin beaks. In fact, Dyer deduces that whatever violence happened here must have driven the penguins they encountered earlier up toward the surface. Well, that said, I mean, you know, a body that had been pecked to death by penguins would probably look pretty gruesome. Yeah, but he knows these things are really tough, made of really tough material. Yes, yeah, yeah. But I was just thinking, you know, he's, mm. he's sort of sliding that to one side. But, yeah, I, I think, you know, if these penguins took a dislike to you, the fact that they're you know, six foot tall, have you mm. know, probably got fairly sharp beaks, I think these things could probably make a real mess of you. Yeah, drive-by penguin would still mess you up. Examining the bodies, the two men are stricken with horror as they realise the type of wounds and the coating of slime echoes some of the later carvings they've seen, depicting those whom the frightful shoggoths had characteristically slain and sucked to a ghastly headlessness in the Great War of Resubjugation. Hey, decapitated older thing. Can I just say how much I love the phrase sucked to a ghastly headlessness? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, if someone hasn't used that in Lovecraftian porn, um, 
You know when you've been Shoggoth sucked. It is not only the bodies that are covered in slime. Danforth notices patterns of dots resembling the writing of the old ones, left in dots of slime on a smooth wall. Well, what do we think the dots might mean? I don't know, it's kind of maybe a language of the old ones, but... It's like Shoggoth graffiti saying old ones go home. Yeah, Yeah. writing on a bathroom wall, that kind of thing. I mean, it's interesting that at this point, the Shoggoths have stopped and actually taken the time to write something here that does speak to their intelligence and Or they're just mimicking like Matt's birds. Um, Because I think that could be the case as well. Maybe. They parrot it back. Mm. It could could just say a random non sequitur like, stairs! Or spiders! Written across the wall. I, I prefer to think that it is some kind of mocking epitaph that they've left for their, you know, their, their one-time subjugators. Now you're a Shoggoth apologist, Scott. I am. Amidst the horror, Dyer feels a pang of sympathy for the fallen old ones. After all, they were not evil things of their kind. Having awoken in a strange new time, the old ones had only behaved like scientists, acting no differently than the members of the expedition might have. Radiates, vegetables, monstrosities, star spawn, whatever they had been, they were men. And here, Dyer expresses some real sympathy, not only for Gedney, who's died. He says, poor Lake, poor Gedney, and poor old ones. Scientists to the last. As we just read out, they were men, and he really feels a sympathy for these monsters. I mean... This is something quite unusual in Lovecraft, I think. Usually the the monsters are the other. You know, these alien races are malevolent towards mankind and, you know, seen as something outside of us. But here we're really seeing a, a, a bonding between humanity and this other race. I think this is... I don't think we've seen this before in Lovecraft. No, it's something that he almost echoes in The Shadow Out of Time. I mean, even if the characters in the story don't have necessarily much sympathy for the Yithians, Lovecraft himself as a writer, when he's describing them and their society, does seem to. Interestingly, there's, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but there's a story in The Private Life of Elder Things, uh, I think it was written by Adrian Tchaikovsky, that does something very similar with um, the Ithians, that really does place them in a human context and has sort of lonely museum researcher making friends with the Ithian, uh, mm. unaware of what he is, but you know, just this sort of bond between the species that grows. These surviving old ones must have been trying to make their way to the last surviving city, down below the sunless sea beneath the peaks. Their torn remains, the trails of slime and the palimpsest carvings forced the men to a conclusion about what had survived in that city for all these years. Yeah, and it's not good. Dyer and Danforth are shaken loose from their frozen panic by a sound emanating from the white mist and billowing up from the depths. Rather than the squawking of penguins, this bears a shocking resemblance to the wind pipings the men had heard around the lofty mountain caves. These cries of Tekalili, Tekalili resemble the cries of birds detailed in Arthur Gordon Pym. Months later, Danforth hints that Poe had access to unsuspected and forbidden sources. The men flee immediately, running up full pelt up the slope. They hope that if there are old ones in pursuit, they might capture the two men rather than kill them, but only out of a sense of scientific inquiry. The cries continue from behind the men, growing more distant. Danforth feels a pang of guilt that one of the old ones might be injured, and that the men are leaving it to a hideous fate. As the mists grow thicker, the men hear penguins panicking all around. The cries of Tekalili, Tekalili grow closer again, suggesting that their pursuer had only paused to examine the bodies of the old ones. Racing on towards the dead city and using the mist and squawks of the penguins for cover, the men sneak a glimpse back at their pursuer to gauge how close it is. Ha <laughs> ha, you haven't played Call of Cthulhu, have you? <laughs> And in that flash of semi-vision can be traced a full half of the horror which has ever since haunted us. They realise in this moment that the new feta has grown virtually undiluted and more poisonously insistent. In accidental unison, they flash their torches on the same target. Rosan. Unhappy act. Not Orpheus himself, or Lot's wife, paid much more dearly for a backward glance. And again came that shocking, 
wide-ranging piping. At this stage, Dyer tells us that no mere words can relay the awfulness of what they saw. The sight cripples their consciousness so completely that they can only continue fleeing out of pure instinct. Uh, one thing we've mentioned a few times in the podcast before is that there isn't necessarily this thing very often in Lovecraft that we see all the time in Call of Cthulhu of you see the monster, you go mad. In most cases, when Lovecraftian protagonists go insane or have bouts of madness, it's because they've they've pieced something together. They've made a discovery. They've encountered a revelation that has shown them something about the nature of reality that they can't cope with. In this case, they really have just looked back at a big fuck-off monster and gone, wah! Yeah, which, totally. Which, yeah, is one of the few times, if not the only time, I can think of this actually happening in Lovecraft. And nice how they're expecting to see one monster, the older things, but actually it's not older things coming up at all. It's the Shoggoth. Dyer hears Danforth repeating a chant to himself. South Station under, Washington under, Park Street under, Kendall, Central, Harvard... The stations of the Boston-Cambridge Tunnel. As comforting as this thought of home might be, Dyer finds only horror in it as he realises what inspired Danforth. An oncoming entity that resembles a vast, onrushing subway train as one sees it from a station platform. Wasn't that the route we took when we were yeah. in Boston? Yes, it was. It was. Hey! hey. Yes. Yeah. We, we just, got on at Central, yeah. Well, I yeah. just realised this. So we were, you know, we were in the Shoggoth Tunnel. Yeah. So recently in the summer, we went to uh, Necronomicon and we travelled back via Boston and we took that very line. But we were not on a station platform. We were on the track ahead as the nightmare plastic column of fetid black iridescence oozed tightly onward through its 15-foot sinus, gathering unholy speed and driving before it a spiral, re-thickening cloud of the pallid abyss vapour. It was a terrible, indescribable thing vaster than any subway train, a shapeless congeries of protoplasmic bubbles, faintly self-luminous, with myriads of temporary eyes forming and unforming as pustules of greenish light all over the tunnel-filling front that bore down upon us, crushing the frantic penguins and slithering over the glistening floor that it and its kind had swept so evilly free of all litter. Still came that eldritch mocking cry, Dekli-lee! lee At last we remembered that the demoniac shoggoths, given life, thought, and plastic organ patterns solely by the old ones, and having no language save that which the dock groups expressed, had likewise no voice save the imitated accents of their bygone masters. Makes you wonder what Tekli-lee translates in Elder Thing. Like, back to work, you use the Shoggoth. <laughs> Probably something like that. Now, Shoggoths are one of the most sanity-blasting creatures in Call of Cthulhu, excluding the gods. Uh, there aren't many creatures mm. in Call of Cthulhu that can inflict a d20 sand loss. I mean, there, there are a few, uh, but they tend to be the big nasties. So, yeah, this is as bad as it gets short of seeing Cthulhu or Shubnigrath or something like that. Yeah. So from that description, it's clearly a disgusting thing. It's clearly horrible. I would have thought a big part of the terror would come from the size of this, you know, obviously predatory thing charging at you like a, an oncoming subway train. But do you think the sight of, of that bubbling mass of protoplasm forming eyes and mouths and glowing a bit and all that, it, would that be enough to drive most people to madness, you know, long-term madness just simply by seeing it? I think so, given that it certainly has features that you can relate to. It's the seeing all those eyes and mouths is something that makes it makes a connection. It's not saying that it looks like human, but it's got bits that remind you of one. I think that's quite a horrific image. Yeah, I, I totally buy that. Yeah, I think you know, I think seeing horrific um, injuries to human beings, you know, not supernatural things, just mundane injuries. Yeah, they can be pretty horrific. Um, they can be horrific, they can be repellent, and they can you know, produce a great visceral reaction. But I think without that emotional connection, I mean, seeing someone die violently in front of you is you know, going to be traumatising. Seeing someone you know and care about dying in front of you violently, that's going to be the thing that breaks you. No, I, I disagree. That Seeing somebody like terribly injured or, or can lead to PTSD... 
reflected perhaps we can say if we're going to parallel it with the sanity mechanism then that would be an effect of a sanity role yeah but i i think i don't know i'm not an expert in such things but i would have thought in most cases that where someone does experience ptsd about through a situation like that it's going to be because you know the witnessing the gore or you know some, someone dying violently but like i say because of the emotional aspect of that um because perhaps there was some threat to themselves at the same time perhaps you know there was a, a an explosion or a fire or something that was uh, an all-out assault on the senses and their, their sense of survival that they you know that they knew the person who who was killed i I don't think that necessarily without that emotional aspect of it, that sense of, of human connection, that simply, say, seeing something hideous like a Shoggoth would necessarily drive one to madness. I think that sense of threat that the men are experiencing there, oh shit, this thing is going to eat us, that is you know, clearly something that is going to have a, a hideously traumatic effect on them. But I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that I buy the idea that, you know, if you were going to a zoo somewhere and they happened to have a shoggoth there, yeah, unlikely, but let's just say that, you know, we've got this, this you know, future Call of Cthulhu setting and some, you know, people have managed to capture enough mythos creatures that they've created, say, a private zoo with some of them. I can't imagine that just going through and seeing a shoggoth in a big, you know, glass case, you know, you'd see that and immediately go... Wibble and, and okay, no. I mean, I think if you're prepared for these things and they're presented to you in a safe environment, I can see that not leading to the same sand loss. And yeah, granted, the the game mechanics don't really accommodate that. Yeah. But yeah, I think if you were designing a scenario and that was the case, then I would probably lessen the sand loss until but it breaks the glass and comes after you. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, yeah yes, <laughs> and then exactly. you get the full effect. Yeah. And then you go for a double whammy and have it eat someone you love. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> We should all just also just give a quick mention to the, the phrase penguin fringed abyss, which, mm. which occurred uh, a few paragraphs back. And when we had an earlier episode and Scott noted the phrase penguin fringed abyss and said somebody should do a podcast with that title. Yeah. Well, sure enough, someone has. J- Jason Janicki, yeah. Yes, indeed. And uh, I just checked before recording and it's still going strong. Very yeah. strong, in fact. It's got quite a large cast. They do actual plays and so on. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to link to that from the show notes. And that brings us to the end of chapter 11. With one more chapter to go, we're going to find out what happens to Dyer and Danforth in the next episode. It is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to everyone who listens to the podcast, everyone who backs us via Patreon, and to specifically thank a few new people. Yeah, at the $1 level, we've got a big thanks going out to Paul Owen. Indeed, thank you very much, Paul. Yes, thank you very much, Paul. And next up, we have a thanks to go out to a um, a singular name here, just Daniel. So, hey, thanks, Daniel. Thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you, Daniel. And now we move up to the $3 level, where we not only say thank you, but we toast the patron. And in this case, we have a new patron to say thank you and cheers to, and that is Stefan Jenkins. So thank you, Stefan, and cheers. Cheers, Stefan. Hey, cheers, Stefan. And then we move up to the hallowed $5 level, where we sing our praises to... You're saying hallowed or just uh, like howled? I think hollowed, that it just leaves you an empty shell of a human being. And this one goes out to Simon Brake. Aha, familiar name there, someone that Matt and I have worked with on a couple of Stygian Fox publications. Mm, indeed, yes. Yeah, thank you, Simon. Brace yourself. Yeah, thank you very much, Simon. The next one goes out to Trebuchet Magazine. Yes, so we should probably explain this. Uh, Trebuchet Magazine have sent us a couple of issues now, and they are, how would you describe 
the magazine. It's it's clearly eclectic, I'd say, borderline esoteric, you know, strange and wonderful and beautiful, but it, very difficult to summarise. Glossy. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that is beautifully reductive, Matt. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, ostensibly an art magazine, right? It is, but at the same time, it seems to delve into uh, philosophy, sometimes science. So the first issue they sent us was one that was themed around time and space. Mm. It's very obvious that at least one of the minds behind it is a Lovecraft fan, because it does sort of touch upon Lovecraftian themes at times, while at the same time also being very much an art magazine. And the latest issue is all about the body. And from the cover letter that Kylas, the publisher, included with it, they have taken influence not only, once again, from Lovecraft, but also very much from David Cronenberg. This is juicy stuff. Drawing from the best. Mm. Well, thank you very much, Trevor Shane Magazine. Indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And uh, we hope that this is artistically pleasing. Meanwhile, on social media, we've had a lovely Apple podcast review from Thomas de Talk in Australia. Yeah, I wonder whether he's an inquisitor, a mechanic, or just someone who tortures engines. <sighs> Soon that'll be tortures engines. Mm. Hey, um, Thomas says, Excellent listening. As I re-emerge myself into the RPG world, finding podcasts have been a great help. This one is brilliant, and about my favourite game, Call of Cthulhu. I'm working my way through the back episodes while eagerly awaiting the new ones. Through this podcast, I have come up with new ideas for scenarios how to write them, and learn to be more confident with improvisation. I enjoy the discussions between Matt, Scott and Paul, and how they don't always agree. <laughs> Rubbish! We're always on the same page. <laughs> I find myself joining in the discussion as I'm driving to work. And we can hear you, Thomas. We can hear you. We are listening. We control the horizontal and the vertical. <laughs> no, thank you very much. That's a lovely review, and we really do appreciate it. And we've had some great feedback on our recent episodes about occult horror. Bones of Cain on Discord said, Just listening to the latest episode, I had a chance to meet Isaac Bonewitz when I was doing my master's. It was at a conference on modern witchcraft and neo-paganism in California. He taught me a new one over the paper I had presented. He did actually pass from cancer about 10 years ago. He was sort of an academic rebel. The story I heard from my mentor was that Berkeley gave him a BA in magic just to get rid of him. He was intense to the point of being frenetic. That's how I remember him. Of course, I was still on the bad end of his questioning. So maybe I'm not the best to judge. Still, it was an interesting encounter. That's a great way for an investigator to get a degree. <laughs> yeah. To be all right, I'll yeah. stay. <laughs> Just take your damn degree and go. <laughs> oh, it seems entirely fitting as well. Yeah. He sounds like a hell of a character, and I, I think it's fair to say that the occult world in general is filled with eccentrics. And he sounds like he was right at home in the midst of all that. But I really do envy you the chance to get to meet him, even if it was under those challenging circumstances. You can always show the scar. This is where he taught me a new one. Yeah. <laughs> Grave Jones on Discord said... I remember buying a queer art book at a shop in Florida in my early teens and sneaking it under my clothes and hiding it from my dad. It had a small section on St. Sebastian imagery and I've collected St. Sebastian images ever since. As a kid, I don't know what I was keying in on seeing St. Sebastian in statuary and paintings until that book made the connection so explicit for me. One of the images that was most striking to me was Yukio Mishima's self-portraits as Sebastian. Around the same time as the photos, he published Confessions of a Mask, a mostly autobiographical novel with a passage describing his first sexual arousal upon seeing an image of St. Sebastian. He's a fascinating writer, and mostly forgotten here in the West. 
Yeah, I've read a few of Mishima's books. Uh, he was an amazing writer and a very strange human being. Paul Schrader did a film about him in the 1980s called, what was it, Mishima, A Life in Four Acts, I think, uh, which is well worth seeing. I, he was a political radical in, I think it was in the 1970s or maybe 60s, he basically wanted to get back to the glory days, i.e., you know, the imperial, very aggressive days of Japan, and tried to conduct a coup and uh, uh, ended up committing a ritual suicide uh, at the end of that. His politics were obviously suspect, but he brought a lot of the, the conflicts inside himself into his work in that, you know, he was a, a gay man in a society where wasn't necessarily a lot of uh, support for, for gay people. At the same time, you know, very macho, very militaristic uh, and very artistic. And, you know, all these contradictions came together to form some really quite beautiful works of art and some really stupid acts of political grandstanding. Grave Jones also says, Paul shouting, Sex magic! With added reverb is really something. <laughs> I don't remember shouting that. Did I shout that? Yep. Okay. I think you, know, you should probably extract that and make it available as a download for any listeners who want to use that as a ringtone. <laughs> oh, I thought, like, you know, for bedroom purposes. Well, that too. Yeah. yeah we charge extra for that, though. And to wrap this episode up, what are our final thoughts about today's discussion on At the Mountains of Madness? We're at the city and shit's got real. Yay! Told yeah. you we good. Shoggoths, Elder Things, it's all there. Mm-hmm. After all the build-up, I mean, we're starting to get, in terms of action, we're starting to get the payoff at this stage. I've complained a little bit about the pacing of this book. But you know, certainly, I think by the time we get to this part, it's moving at a reasonable rate. It's not bogged down under lots of <laughs> research about geology and uh, and you know, the, these interminable descriptions of the biology of the, the old ones. And I reckon if more of the story were written like this... I'd find it one of my favourites of Lovecraft. So I'm not saying that there's no place for the other material. I think that sets a lot of very interesting stuff in place. But up to this point, it really did try my patience. When you say it's moving along, would that be at the same kind of rate as a subway train hurtling yes. towards you? <laughs> yeah. There's some great stuff in the chapters we covered today. And this whole thing of the sympathy for the elder things, you know, I can't really get over that. That's mm. just so fundamental to the story, I think. Yeah, if only Lovecraft had felt that way about more human beings. Well, indeed. To my mind, he's kind of paralleling them with the human race and the potential for them to be overthrown by their own creations. This is, in its own way, very much sort of almost like a Frankenstein story. Mm. But I guess the difference there is that in Frankenstein, the sympathy is very much with the creature. Uh, not with the creator. Yeah. But here, I, I think it probably says quite a lot about Lovecraft that he looked at the, the template of Frankenstein and thought, well, actually, the really sympathetic one there is Dr. Frankenstein. <laughs> I don't really get the feeling that he looked at Frankenstein for this, though, particularly. But, I mean, no, I can I, see, I, I, I can see I, a parallel. I'm being, but... I'm being slightly facetious, okay, but yeah. not entirely. Yeah. <laughs> it, it strikes me as being a very Lovecraftian view on things, that you know, the Shoggoths, instead of being... Yeah, the, the sympathetic creatures that were created to do a job, it developed accidental intelligence and ended up trying to break free of the bonds that were placed upon them, that they are still shown very much as ravening monsters. And the creatures that created them and, and ill-treated them and, and, and tried to control them are portrayed entirely sympathetically. And uh, yeah, I think this ties in an awful lot with Lovecraft's political and social views. How about paralleling the, the Shoggoths? the creations of the elder things that are finally their doom with Terminators. You know, we create the Terminators in the, in the films. Mm. And in the future, you know, they rise up and they're putting down mankind. We have to send people back to the past to avert that dreadful uh, future. So the Shoggoths, they're not like Frankenstein is a version of a man. I mean, he is a man. He's an intelligent man that, that's created uh, by Frankenstein. Well, Sorry to use the term Frankenstein for the monster. Whereas the Shoggoths, they're a, they're a thing created by the Elder Things, but they're not really a parallel to the Elder Things. We kind of see perhaps they form intelligence and perhaps they emulate their masters. 
But I, th- I think there's a lot of transference going on to sort of make parallel them with slavery in America and, and Britain and so on um, that has happened in the past and, you know, one might argue still happening today. But mm. um, I think we're very much looking at that, that history of slavery and trying to parallel that onto Shoggoths. I'm not really, I don't really sure I'd buy that. I don't know. I can see Lovecraft seeing slave revolts as being a bad thing. And that's very much how he's portraying it here. I also think that, touching on what you said about the Terminators, there is perhaps a parallel for some fears that people have got these days about the development of artificial intelligence, that there are a lot of people in the tech industry who are frightened of what would happen if we actually do create genuine artificial intelligence and we'd reach what's referred to as the singularity, that point at which AIs can develop themselves, program themselves, and they suddenly instantly race beyond anything that we can understand and doesn't that just come back to, you know, that archetypal Lovecraft passage about science and humanity putting all the correlating all the pieces together and, and either fleeing into a new dark age or it's, it's that kind of fear of knowledge and the accumulation of knowledge actually being our downfall and our own creations being our downfall, I think. I think that's yeah. what I see. Rather than the decline, perhaps, of civilization, it's about the, the fear that we're going to create something that could be our doom. You know, the one thing, going back to your statement earlier, hmm. what's worse than a Shoggoth? What is worse than a Shoggoth, Matt? A time-travelling Shoggoth, oh, because yeah. that's going to be 2D20 sand loss. Yeah, played by a naked Arnie. <laughs> Come with me if you want to take the lead! Well, on that bombshell, should we leave it there for today? <laughs> well, I don't think we're going to top that. No. <laughs> All right, well, it's a uh, good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.